Bald Men on Campus with Jay Billis, LaFonso Ellis, and Seth Greenberg. Welcome to Bald Men on Campus. This is basically the reverse fade rewind of the season, kind of looking back at some of the storylines, teams, and things we would want to talk about. I'm joined by Jay Billis, who's traveled cross-country just to be on the podcast today, giving up an immeasurable amount of time and sleep-deprived, which obviously cranky Jay Billis is better than actually well-rested Jay Billis, so we're in for a treat. And then LaFonso Ellis, who has got a very, very busy schedule today. He does not want to end up on a couch. So we're going to keep this short and sweet. Uh, so we're going to look at a, at a bunch of things. You know, first of all, we know Kansas obviously tremendous, tremendous end to their season and uh, a very worthy champion. Let me ask you guys, best team in college basketball this past year, not named Kansas. For me, it was Gonzaga, uh, and I know it ended in the Sweet 16 against Arkansas, and that's the the lasting memory we'll have is the end. But I'm not sure there was a better team start to finish than Gonzaga, and uh, they weren't as good as they were last year. But that doesn't mean they weren't the best team this year. And you know, as we all know, the best team doesn't always win uh, in the NCAA tournament. And it was a fine line. There wasn't a big gap between uh, uh, among some of the top teams. Uh, they could all beat one another in a given game. But but over the course of a season, I don't think anybody can claim that they played consistently at a higher level than Gonzaga did. Yeah, for me, uh, and I would agree with you with Gonzaga, Jay, I, the, the team that had, I felt the best balance that didn't win it was Purdue. Uh, <laughs> we've talked about all along how they have, they're too deep at every position. And uh, St. Peter's did a really nice job of disrupting Jaden Ivey and taking that team out of transition. And I thought they did an even better job of not allowing uh, their bigs to consistently catch the ball with deep post position. And um, Purdue, uh, with their ability to be able to shoot it with their two bigs on the inside with uh, Zach Eady and Travion Williams. I just thought they were formidable, but St. Peter's, uh, their game plan and their defensive pressure uh, really bothered Purdue and kept them from getting uh, deep into the NCAA tournament. Formidable is a great word, Fonz, by the way. That, that, that is one of your favorite words. Formidable is a great I have to find a way to use formidable at some point. Someone's no. going to say my golf swing is formidable or forgettable. <laughs> I, I would say it's forgettable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like both of those are great picks. I mean, Gonzaga, my concern about Gonzaga, even carrying over from a year ago, is when people got up and underneath them and took them out of flow, you know, they just didn't function the same way. Not that they weren't good, not they weren't good through the course of the season, not that they didn't have a great non-conference. And then Purdue, who you put on the couch, Fonz, yes. uh, because they, they didn't guard. And they, mm -hmm. they are another team that when people pushed them out, you know, to me, and maybe – this sounds crazy. The team with the most pros. Mm. Like Duke had the most pros. Duke, Duke's going to have four first-round draft choices. Mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, it's, there's a fine line. They get to the Final Four. Obviously, they struggled down the stretch. I thought their last game, pressure had nothing to do with it. Uh, I mean, I think of Wendell Moore's shots. I think of Trevor Keel's shots. Uh, but if you talk about a team that had a dominant post player, had a mm. dominant forward, uh, Jeremy Roach's move to the point guard, I thought was a great decision in terms of helping them get easier baskets. 
experience with Williams, experience with Roach, experience with Moore, uh, just in terms of talent. Now, they didn't always play that way, even though their analytics were really good. Just in terms of talent, I mean, it was hard to say there was another team even close to as talented mm-hmm. as Duke. Uh, would you guys agree with that? Yeah, but but I think I think what it sounds like we're saying is is we're picking the teams that should have been the best. Like, you know, Purdue, I th- I thought was the best team in the first couple months of the season. And then I, I didn't think so in the last two months. And uh, and I would say this a similar thing about Duke, like early in the season, you, you know, you kept thinking they were going to stay on that upward trajectory and they didn't. And toward the end, like in the tournament, the first two weekends, they were the best team oh, great. and didn't play yeah. that way. didn't play quite that way against North Carolina and give the, the heels credit for that. Um, and I guess, you know, in the Gonzaga pick, it was more about, you know, how they played all year rather than, because I, I think we could pick any of these teams to say at a given time, they could beat the other, or they, they could have been the best team, all that. But it sounds like what we're saying with, with Purdue and, and Duke is, is they should have been best. And it was, you know, it didn't turn out to be that kind of year where where we had a team that could separate. And I don't really, I'm not sure I know the reason why. Honestly, that's why at the beginning of the tournament, remember when when we did a podcast on Selection Sunday, we were we were all saying, God, I, when was the last time we said I don't know this much? You know, it was, it was crazy. Yeah, how, how much of that you guys think was is the fact that many, if not all, of those teams had a like a glaring weakness? And Jay, you pointed this out, and I I missed that detail with regard to Duke when, you know, we know Duke for being an excellent defensive team. And it was after, I think you called maybe the third game and we had a podcast and you made the point that they're not turning teams over like they have historically. In fact, uh, the, I, I think you mentioned that they're the amount of turnovers that they're forcing versus the amount of turnovers that they make were actually very, very close, if not slightly under. And so uh, obviously that prevented them from being able to create offense off of their defense. And then with Purdue, uh, Seth, one of the things you and I talked about is outside of Jaden Ivey, who's the next guy that's dynamic off the dribble that can create offense for himself or his teammates. And they just didn't have that as talented as they, as both of those teams are, they did have uh, two weaknesses that could be exploited by the other teams. I agree. All right. Most disappointing team. Mm-hmm. I go with the whole big 10. <laughs> wow. No, honestly, I mean, you know, I got you. I was looking at some numbers and I can't remember right now whether it was uh, eight, 18 or 19 that they've had in the tournament the last two years. And of those, uh, whether it's 18 or 19, uh, of the teams they've had in the tournament, only three of them advanced to the second weekend the last two years. Oh, wow. And and look, the SEC didn't have a good year this year in the tournament. They only advanced Arkansas to the Elite Eight. Uh, and that was their only team remaining in the second weekend. That was disappointing for that league, given how well they had played through the course of the year. And you know, a couple teams were banged up and, you know, Auburn wasn't playing well at the end. Their guards weren't playing well. But, uh, you know, the the, the I don't know what what how you process that for the Big Ten. Do you say, well, you know, it's just one of those things. But but when you have two data points rather than one year, mm-hmm. uh, it, you start to go, is this a trend? And uh, two and years, though. It's yeah. only two. Yeah, that, that's that's a great point. No, no, but, I all, but also 22 years since they won a championship. Right, mm-hmm. right. But but there are a bunch of leagues. That, you know, there are several leagues that are, are looking at that, you know, Pac-12 and all that stuff. It's been a while mm-hmm. for a number of leagues. But, um, you know, I, I, I just I, I think the Big Ten, uh, 
Uh, I thought at the beginning of the year, I think on one of our podcasts, hey, man, the Big Ten's got to they got to step it up this year and, and make up for it. And I'm not sure that the league really did, honestly. Yeah. For me and its individual team, it would have been Auburn as a team who, and Jay, you, you just mentioned them, a team that was in the, uh, they were, yeah, they ranked number one uh, for, for, for a while. And a team that, uh, though, as we looked at them, we felt that they had some big holes uh, as well. But uh, I, though I had Miami beaten Auburn, that, that was more of a, Miami had more guys who could make plays than Auburn did. And I just didn't trust Auburn's backcourt. But when you consider all that they did in the regular season, I thought Auburn might be able to get to me. I could have been wrong and Auburn would have gotten to the sweet 16. But when you consider all that they did during the regular season, um, (laughs) Walker Kessler, uh, his development and his emergence, I thought Jay, that they could legitimately get to a sweet 16. I thought I'd be wrong. I thought they'd actually uh, beat Miami, but uh, for them, not, with the talent that they have, um, with the style that they play, the best shot blocker in all of college basketball, to not get to a Sweet 16, I thought was uh, a missed mark by Auburn. You know, I look at both of those. Like the Big Ten, do they have enough dynamic guards that can just carry you uh, through a tournament? Because I think you need dynamic, you know, I use the term floor gamers, but guys that can just, when it, when it, when it comes nut-cutting time in the NCAA tournament, it's going to be as you move along and you're playing possession games, you're going to play against a lot of different styles. You need some guys that are just going to go and make plays. Obviously, Jaden Ivey was one of those guys. Oh, that, that's not their style of play. If you look at the style of play in the Big Ten, do they have that guy that could go and just flat make a play? And, that, and that's my concern just even moving forward for the, for the Big Ten. Uh, are, are those guys go, you know, going there? And then Auburn finds, we, we said all season long, their guards, their guards, their guards, their guards, selfishness of their guards, mm-hmm. uh, shot selection, decision making. Uh, why isn't Jabari getting the ball with, yeah. you know, more often? And that stuff eventually is going to bite you in the ass. I mean, it's just going to bite you in the ass. I mean, so I mean, like, and look, let's face it, the most disappointing team in the tournament was Kentucky. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that, like, that, let's let's call it the way it is. I mean, you know, Kentucky was a team I thought was going to make a deep run. I thought that, yeah, they had weaknesses. Now, Calvin Grady wasn't playing well at the end of the season, wasn't making shots. Uh, people figured out a little bit how to play Savir in terms of, you know, gapping them and, and, and helping in the lane. But if you looked at Kentucky, you looked at the, the year that Oscar had and Jacob Topping improving and, and Keon Brooks getting more consistent. I mean, not none of us, I think, could have thought of a scenario where – Obviously, they were going to lose to St. Peter's, and, and and it happens. I mean, it happens. We've seen Lehigh beat people. We've seen Bucknell beat people. We've seen, you know, uh, Hampton beat people in the NCAA tournament. But, we, but, I, but it was unfathomable to all of us to see them lose to St. Peter's, who had a look. You know, they also beat, you know, Purdue. I mean, they, had, they, uh, they also beat Murray State, who was having a great year. So, I mean, kudos to them, but I mean, in terms of disappointing, you, know, you can't, it's undeniable uh, that, you know, the Big Blue Nation was absolutely stuck. Mm. So, storylines. What's your favorite storyline, Fonzarelli? My favorite storyline is is the how well the ACC performed. Yeah, is how yeah. well the ACC performed. I mean, we we've all and it's well documented that they didn't perform well in the non-conference season. And so uh, the fact that only five teams got into the NCAA tournament, 
was justified. And yet, uh, as much maligned as they were, I mean, Notre Dame uh, squeezed in there. They were able to get two wins in the NCAA tournament. Uh, Virginia Tech, uh, unfortunately, did not. But then you have three teams that two of which got all the way to the final four and Miami played well until they ran into a uh, Kansas team that jumped in the second half. And uh, no, I, if, if I'm the ACC with all the criticism that it took during the uh, non-conference season, then leading into the regular season uh, to have availed themselves the way that they did uh, in the NCAA tournament, they've got to be feeling really good about itself as a conference. But Fon, so you think that's those three teams, that's not the conference. But those three teams availed themselves and had great runs. Correct. I Correct. mean, that's not the conference didn't take care of. Look, I, no, agree. Absolutely I, I agree. Mean, it's, the Absolutely conference agree. is, is going to be fine. It's going to put five, yes. six, seven teams in the future. But they didn't perform. But those three teams, those three teams, yes, were really they were really freaking good. Mm-hmm. I agree. And and they all developed, Jake. For me, in a in a season full of good stories, maybe the most compelling story was Houston. Uh, you know, saw them early in the year when they dismantled Virginia and they were, uh, I thought rolling toward an opportunity to win the whole thing and to be that good. And then they lose Marcus Sasser and Tremont Mark for the season. And truthfully, I thought they were done. Um, you know, could they win the American? Yeah, maybe, but I, I figured they were done that there was no way that they would would find themselves in the elite eight with a chance to to get to a final four again after doing it last year. And they retooled and sort of changed some of the the things that they did. Guys stepped into bigger roles and did more and they found themselves in the elite eight. And uh, and the only team, you know, the only team they couldn't you know bully was was uh, Villanova. And they wound up getting clipped in, in, you know, what was a brutal game. What was a 50, 44, 94 points for the, those two teams. It's kind of hard to imagine, but um, I thought what Kelvin Sampson and his, uh, his team did was, uh, was really compelling. And it, you know, to me, it was a great story of, of, you know, toughness and being resilient and uh, not accepting uh, a fate that, other people thought was inevitable. And it was, it, that impressed me as much as anything I saw this year. I agree. I tell you what, I mean, like when they lost Sasser and then lost Trey mm-hmm. Mark, I forget which one went down first. You're looking and going, I've seen Josh Carlton play, you know, I, you know, we, we've seen Shen, we've seen those guys. Can they be the guy that, you know, look, they didn't have quad one win in their, in their non-conference schedule and in, in their during the course of the season. How good are they? Well, they were really good and they were good and consistent in how they played and what they did. They were great at what they did. And, and Kelvin probably, probably as good as any in terms of game planning and putting guys in position to play best strengths, figuring out who they are and how they win. But more importantly, game planning against an opponent. Like he never let the other team's best player beat him. That was not happening. Even in the game they lost, uh, they didn't get beat by Colin Gillespie. You know, it, you know, it, it was a rock fight. This is an, uh, a story. Well, I guess it's a story. It's a postseason storyline. And I'd love for our research guys to check this out. Have we ever had a conference lose six coaches in one year? SEC. Wow. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, like, now, now think about that. You mean That's a major a half conference? Of, 
a major conference, half mm-hmm. of their league is going to be led by new coaches. Right? I mean, almost half of your league. I mean, like, I, I don't know. I, I was trying to go back. I mean, shoot. I mean, the Big 12's got 10 schools. That would have been 60% of their league. <laughs> you know, I mean, so like, you know, what, you know, what does that mean? Um, you know, in, in, in the state of college basketball, and I guess to tie into that, it's not going back, but what is going to be, what is, what is our game going to, going to look like three years from now? Uh, will, will, will water find its level in terms of the transfer portal, NIL and everything else? Because right now it is an absolute, uh, free for all across the board. And are we going to see more six guys get whacked in one year? And I, I don't know. I just, I can't even imagine six coaches in one league getting let go in the same year. And the amount of money that those guys probably get paid in buyouts is probably astronomical as well. Cause as Jay would always say, there's not enough money. But I mean, like Jay, Jay, you, you've been doing this a long time. I mean, you know, Fonz, you were out of it all your, your years. Can you remember a year where like the ACC or the Big Ten had six jobs open? I can't. No. And I don't know. I don't know whether that's a, you know, tipping point or whatever you'd call it, a canary in the coal mine or whatever. Um, I, I, I think we need more time to, to see what happens. I'm, I'm not as worried about like the transfer portal, and and player movement is is so different that it is concerning. Um, but yeah. what what seems to be concerning more than anything is it, it, like I don't have a problem with you know it's more difficult to follow the game and all this stuff. And now we're we're waiting to see which players are going to go into the NBA draft, which will come back. So you know we don't have the certainty we used to about. You know, when the buzzer went off at the final four in the last game, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we pretty much knew who was going to be the best teams the next year. We don't know now. We have to wait. And and I don't know whether that's good or bad for for overall for the product. Um, and I, but I'm not as worried about player movement. Now, if I were coaching and you have a chance to lose your roster, it means you've got a, you know, you can retool faster. It's not like in the old days where if you had a couple guys go pro, you know, you may be screwed the next year. You you can replace them right away now. And, and if you're taking a new job, you know, you don't have a coach doesn't have the, uh, the same amount of time to be able to say, well, we're going to build this thing the right way. We're going to get two or three classes in a row and, and build yeah. to the future and, and all that stuff. Now you, you can, with the portal, you can be competitive right away. You may not be great right away, but you know, you saw it at Texas, Texas tech, all these other places, you can be really good. You can be really good right away. And so that, that method of thinking is gone. And, uh, and I don't know that it's going to come back until there's, but, but, you know, Seth, the NIL piece, that's, that's really new too. And it's been difficult for a lot of people to wrap their heads around, but you know, we're headed toward, it seems to me we're headed toward absent congressional involvement in all this, where there's a, a federal law that governs all this. You know, we're probably looking at a point in the near future where we have uh, schools signing players to contracts. And that's actually, it may not be palatable to some, 
because of the way they view it. But that's actually going to make things easier, better, and more stable. And, and it'll, it'll help with player retention. Uh, just be interesting to see how it works. So they, if they sign the contracts, then they'll be taxed on that revenue, right? Yeah. I mean, they could, you know, if they went out and got a job, they'd be taxed on it. Uh, they're yeah. taxed on NIL money. Right uh, now, there, yeah. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a thought in the future that if things keep going toward player compensation, they could be taxed on, on the scholarship benefit. But I, I'm not worried about players paying tax. I mean, the, the entire world pays tax. That, that, yeah, that's no, not a problem. So, so I, I think, and, and look, there's a part of this that that I think dovetails really nicely and, and blends with education. I mean, you know, we used to say when a player left college that they're going to have to learn how things go in the real world. Now, now they're going to get that uh, in college with the support of their universities to be able to help educate them on how to handle it. And they'll have a lot of resources available to them uh, to do that. It, it'll put a little more administrative uh, uh, work on the part of the schools to manage all of it and help, help the players manage it. Schools don't, don't have to manage it, but, but the, most of it for me is more opportunity than, than a negative. You mentioned academics, though, but and Fonz, we talked about this in our, our our last game day show before the championship game. Academics are, have been, you know, we're talking about the elite elite players, and I actually think we're going to break off and end up having you know five major conferences or four major conferences, and then have a whole set of bylaws for those guys. But we academics is, has 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 been eliminated from the conversation. I, I had this past week. I've been on the phone. With about 20 or 30 guys. And and here are the conversations I'm here having. And I'm not gonna well, have one one kid who redshirted basically said, Am I gonna be the focal point of everything we do? And the coach says, You'll be part of what we're trying to do. I and mean, we're trying to have continue to build our program and you know, compete at the highest level. And he said, Well, if I can't be the focal point of what we're gonna do, then I'm God. If you can't tell me I'm gonna, I'm you know, that's what I'm gonna be, and, and the kid, our kid leaves. Boom. Like you know, which is that's kid's prerogative, but that that it, it just We've created unrealistic expectation. I mean, there's another guy that told me his kid played 27 minutes a game. You know, he could got a call from a parent and said, well, do you believe in my son? And like the guy said, he's playing 27 minutes a game. I mean, how much more, do, you know, do I have to believe in him? <laughs> right. I mean, I, I and just we're so unrealistic. And then the last thing that I get a kick out of it, I, I love the gloss, and I don't get pushed back on this, and you guys can disagree with me. You know, a kid decides to transfer. And all of a sudden he has this glossy thing on Instagram, thanking everyone in the world for what a wonderful experience he had, thanking the university, the trainers and everyone else. Oh, by the way, I've decided to transfer. It's almost like, you know, and I understand everyone's worrying about branding and, and, and all that jazz, but, you know, I find it, you know, I guess ingenuine, uh, and then we've got 160, I think, kids right now in 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 the draft, and the 60 guys drafted. And I think we've got, if I counted it correctly, like 95, uh, 100, and, uh, I'm sorry, 150 or 140 underclassmen. When only 60 guys get drafted, and everyone has a prerogative to just put his name and take him out. But I, I just think we're we're create we're worried about all these things. We're creating such unrealistic expectations. Uh, for 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 these young people, and and yet we don't put any expectation on what 
you know, on education. It's never talked about, Hans. No, no, no question. And it, it's interesting. And where it bears its, its, its head is, I don't know how often this happens to you, but to say it happens every day would be an exaggeration, of course. But uh, throughout the course of the summer, I run into cats all the time who uh, played at big time universities, uh, didn't get their degrees and are stuck and are saying, Fonz, I don't know what to do next. And it makes it hard because how, how do you help a guy get a job, especially a meaningful job, when in this current situation, he can't afford to pay for his education to finish up his credits. And obviously, there's no one who's going to hire him without having a, a degree. And then, and, that, and then I roll it back a little bit. The one I've been getting a lot lately is for the kids who transfer, not all their credits transfer to their next school. And so they're behind. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's alarming because the what t- top 10, 15, 20% of players in the country will be able to benefit from uh, NIL. And yet the others won't. And then what are those guys left with if they're not after four years or five years leaving with a meaningful uh, degree in education? I think we have to address that piece, too. I know you can't make anybody go to class, but we can at least put a system in place that encourages them, too, so that when they leave, they're able to go out in the marketplace and compete. Well, but some schools have bonus now. Yeah, but but part of it is is what what's the alternative like? So the way I look at it is the education of every student is up to the school that they're at. And, you know, if you want your players to take challenging classes and to uh, put education first, then encourage them to do that or show them the door. Like there's nothing wrong with that, Mm -hmm. but, but there's a push pull between being really good uh, having a really good team and then the education piece, like I, I think coaches are great educators in a lot of ways. You know, they, they teach valuable lessons. My coaches were the best teachers I ever had, but my education was up to me and up to my school. And if I didn't perform at a level they felt acceptable, I didn't have a uniform. And that, that was the way it was at my school. And, uh, you know, so some of these things, it, it's kind of like when, and I know this is a little bit tangential, but you know, when coaches talk about the transfer portal and they say, hey, there are there are other coaches recruiting off of my roster. And and you say, OK, well, what, what you know, what does that say? Does that say there are ethics problems in the coaching profession? That's what it sounds like to me. So rather, rather than, you know, so so how do we address those ethical problems in the coaching profession? We restrict the players. That, that doesn't seem fair to me. Um, and look, I, I think there are problems with the portal, but I don't think there are problems with players being allowed to transfer. And, um, uh, you know, we, we've talked about this a number of times. We won't rehash it all. But, but it, it, to me, you know, these problems are systemic. And it's because of inaction for all these years on the part of the NCAA to address these issues. And that's why it seems like we've had drastic change. When the truth is, we've had drastic change on the revenue side, on the way the business works. And I don't know if, if we've talked about this on this podcast, but I'll just mention it really quickly. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm doing the same thing you guys are. I'm talking to a lot of people like I normally do. And there was an administrator recently that was talking about congressional involvement, that we need to have rationality brought into the process as to how much is paid to a player. 
And when I, because, you know, maybe a, a, a collective or a booster or something will act irrationally and, and pay way too much money to a player or players to have their team in football or basketball be really good. And, you know, I, at first, when I heard that, I was like, yeah, you know, that, that makes sense. And I understood the, I understood the concept, but I really started thinking about the rationality. And I thought, well, how rational is it that we're running a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry off college campuses? That doesn't seem very rational to me, given the the high-minded rhetoric that the system uses about education first, and this is what it's all about, and things like that. And to me, it's completely rational to pay a player what you think that player is worth in the marketplace. What If we want to talk about rationality, what's not rational is running this gigantic entertainment industry off of, you know, off of the campuses of, of institutions of higher learning. And until we address that first as to, to whether we should do things this way, um, uh, to me, what the players are making is further down the line of, of issues that need to be need to be addressed in a rational fashion, if that makes sense. I hear you. One, one thing you said earlier, Jay, that I disagree. A player's education is his responsibility. The yeah. university is the, is the vehicle. But a player, like I, I used to say every single parent I had home visit with, I'll graduate every single kid who wants to get graduate, which means I'll graduate every single kid who will go to class, be on time, do their assignments, attend study hall, be accountable for what is responsible in that class and those classes, like everyone else that's sitting in that class. The university is the vehicle. The, the player obviously has to be the person that makes the commitment. Now, the static around that player is everything but academics. It's, it's no different than parenting. Your kids will have the values and, and the priorities that you give them most times. If, and if, if the priority in, in a way is league, 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 money, 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 I'm going to monetize my kids' money. And, and education doesn't become in, come in the conversation. What's happened is too many times education is always part of the process in the, recru- the beginning of the recruiting process. So it was. No one ever leaves a school because of education. People leave the school for playing time, leave the school roll, shots, and now NIL money. It's never education, but and, and, and education has been put, unfortunately, on the back burner. And 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 that we've got to find a way to bring it back to a focal point. And I, NIL is fine. I mean, look, it's a NIL right now is a market value. It's 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 it. These collectives are no more than just finding a way to legally buy players. That's fine. That's what it is. That's fine. And I have no problem with it. But we've got to find a way. And look, the NCAA isn't giving you an opportunity to incentivize education because they have those bonuses, that $5,000 bonus. Some some schools have that if you're in good academic standards or make whatever certain GPA, you, you actually get a $5,000 stipend. Uh, but we've got to find a way to incent, uh, incentivize education because if we don't, we're going to have a generation of guys that hope to be pros, but aren't. not everyone's a pro. Not everyone's going to get to the league. It's the most exclusive club in the world. Europe's money is drying out unless you are really good and you have to earn your money in Europe. And my brother's been there for 20 years. He's not taking some kid coming out of college because he can't win in Europe with those guys. He needs a tough, mature. So we've got to find a way to bring education back into the conversation somehow, some ways. 
is 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 my belief. And maybe I'm too Pollyanna about it, but no, I just but think we've got to find a way to do you're it. You're not you're not Pollyanna at all. But what I would say about what what, what maybe I didn't state it artfully, I'm I'm not saying that that uh, uh, education isn't up to the player. It's a you know a player's success on the court is up to the player too. Yeah. What I'm saying is if if any school wants to prioritize education over everything else, there's nothing stopping them from doing that. And and if a player's not going to class, don't give me a uniform. If a player's not taking the courses that you think are challenging enough for that player and, and prioritizing education, don't give them a uniform. Uh, but but we're not seeing that happen. Mm-hmm. And and like your point about incentivizing education, like you know, now that that schools can give money for academic performance, that that door is open now. Yeah. And if you say, OK, if you have a certain GPA, you'll get five thousand dollars or whatever the number is. Well, what's the incentive there is to take easier classes so you can hit that number. And it, it is that, you know, and that that really has been an incentive for eligibility standards, too, is is let's make sure we keep our, our players eligible so the easier path is more encouraged by some of these schools and and honestly, some of the coaches, whether it's in football, basketball or other sports, make sure they take classes that fit into your practice schedule uh, when they may have to miss class once a week or excuse me, miss practice once a week for a lab or something like that. You know, that there's a there's a pressure on a player not to do certain things like that. So, um, you know, that was my point about school, an individual school prioritizing education the way it wants to. And so, you know, I think what we're seeing in some of these examples we're talking about is schools not doing that. They say they're doing it, but I don't think they are. And I used an example of Ben Simmons the other day on a a different show I was on, sort of the idea that, you know, people said, well, Ben Simmons didn't go to class. And I don't know whether he did or not. I wasn't policing that. But let's say for argument's sake, he didn't. Well, whose fault is that? Number one, it's Simmons' fault. He should go to class. Yes. And, and he should put the effort in and all that stuff. Every student should. But if he's not doing it, why is he playing? What, what's the priority? Like what priority? What message are you sending to not only that player, to every other athlete at your university? You're saying we don't care about that. We care about what you do on the field of play on the court. And uh, and players get those messages and everybody gets them. I got it, too, from LSU yeah. on that. I don't mean to pick on LSU and certainly sure. don't mean to pick on Ben Simmons. I'm just using that as a high profile example. Uh, so so that that's more what I was saying. And I agree with you that, you know, look, when players transferred, when I played in the 80s, nobody transferred for academics back then either. They transferred. They ju- there just weren't as many because they didn't have the portal back then. If they had the portal, we would have left at the same rate they're leaving now because guys were just as unhappy. It's not that they wanted to. We were tougher and we wanted to fight through adversity. <laughs> we didn't have the choice. And and I tell coaches all the time when they say, well, this kid doesn't want to go through adversity. These kids today don't want to go through adversity. One of the things I ask is. So when you recruited him, you led with adversity, right? You said, when you get here, it's going to be adversity. You're going to have a ton of adversity. You're probably not going to play. Not a lot, oh, not yeah. a lot of them do that. I, I think a lot of guys say, look, it's not easy. College basketball looks a lot easier. It's not easy. You're going to have to earn what you get. I think a lot of guys do that. I, I got to be honest with you. I think, I think a lot, like, sure, you're going to create an environment and, and a picture of, of, of the program. I think the problem is today, you know, that might not be bought, but I think a lot of guys say college basketball is hard. I mean, I mean, I I think I think a good portion of guys say like this crappy, you know, 
you know, it's, it's hard. And this shit is hard. And, it, you know, it's going to take time. It's an adjustment. And, you know, but we think that you have what it takes to be successful and you're going to have to grind through it. But it, look, I say it all the time. It looks easy on TV. That shit is hard in real life. It's hard. It's hard. But 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 look, they're not they're not saying, hey, look, when you come here, likelihood is you're not going to play. You're not going to play your freshman year. Like some of them do it with the lower rank recruits. Uh, like like I remember Jay Wright talking about uh, when he was recruiting Colin Gillespie, talking to him about redshirting. And uh, and, you know, and Gillespie looked at him like, go ahead, talk up all you want. I'm not redshirting and I'm not going to I'm not going to sit. I'm going to work my way in the lineup. That might be a different way. But if you're if yeah. you're telling your top recruits when you get here, chances are you're not going to play. You're probably not going to get that guy. And uh, and they're talking to guys about NBA now and all these things. And, and that that's great. Yeah. But but I, I just don't see today's player as as being they have options available to leave. And when they when they do, you know, realize, hey, I, I'm not happy here. I don't like it here for whatever reason. Um, it gets characterized differently sometimes by the coach that's getting left than it does by the player leaving. I mean, it sounds awfully different yeah. when you talk when you talk to the two parties. And the, the, these these players are a lot smarter than they get credit for, and uh, and their, their families are a lot smarter. Are there dumb ones? Are there decisions we differ with? Absolutely. But a lot, most of the time when I hear why a player transferred, um, I kind of, I kind of nod my head and say, I, you know, okay, I get that. I get it. I mean, and yeah, I'm not saying anyone's <laughs> stupid, by the way. I, I mean, no, no, for no, sure, I'm not saying sure. you. I, no, I didn't no, say not, you. Not. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, no. yeah. 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 No, it's it, it's this little thing. We'll, we'll get into it on, on another podcast. I was talking to Conzo Martin about it a long time ago. And we're talking about uh, even, uh, ways to encourage kids to have a uh, cover letter and a resume uh, and, 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 and coming up with ways where we could have a hundred percent placement rate uh, for jobs for our student athletes and that kind of thing, especially in Nate with NIL now and donors and sponsors and all of them uh, getting involved in the process. So that's a longer conversation, but I just wanted to add that to let you know where my mindset was with all of that. But one more, one more thing, like, so Fonz, before when, we, when you're talking about players that don't have a degree, mm-hmm. there are, there are, there are countless players out there in, in a ton of sports that have degrees that aren't doing them any good. Correct. And that, that's, that's part of the issue too. And Jay, that's why I say meaningful. Meaningful. Yeah. <laughs> mean, okay. Okay. Good. I mean, that, that's yes. what that, yes. that's, we're saying exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's on the school too, mm-hmm. in part it's on the mm-hmm. player, mm-hmm. but the school knows what, what, what's going to help that player in the yep. future. And so I'm sensitive to the fact that, that some players are getting into schools that they might not have gotten into otherwise. And mm-hmm. having that degree in any way, shape or form is, is more helpful than not. I get that. But at the same time, uh, you know, it, not every player is fitting in every school and, and right. the I get that. responsible for who they recruit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, hey, if, if you're recruiting a guy that doesn't prioritize education, stop recruiting Right. Uh, if you prioritize it and and we're, we're seeing a lot of. Look, I agree with you, except if a kid gets a degree, a big, a big part of the university's responsibility is. And I, this is kind of ties to what you were talking about, is to expose them to enough alumni that basically mentor them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being that bridge is a big, a big theme of, of this year's NCAA tournament, 
and build a bridge to open up doors mm-hmm. that they can walk through to have an opportunity to have a life after athletics and and having a degree uh, is just like again part of that process. But it really, in the end, who helps you get your first job? It's it's relationships. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you if you if you're a graduate and you're you go to Notre Dame, Duke, Fairleigh Dickinson, whatever. If we created an opportunity to have mentorship programs within a university uh, so that you could connect people and then that, that mentor would be with that athlete throughout his career and mm-hmm. would invest in his future, that's the biggest thing that we can do to help. No matter what they major in, if you have someone that's like my son, my son-in-law uh, was a sociological major, I think, at, at, at Virginia Tech. Right. He's in construction now, but he had someone invest in him mm-hmm. and teach him. Uh, he's he's second in command of a large construction company and, and doing great. Uh, but he had someone invest, you know, in him and mentor him and, and hold his hand and bring him along. And 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 that's what we really need, to be honest with you, more than anything, more than NIL. We need to create mentorship programs within athletic departments so that yeah. someone, when they do leave, has someone to hold their hand and build that bridge for them to cross into the next stage of their life, whether it's they play professionally for a couple of years and then come back. That's the biggest thing that we need moving forward on college campuses, no matter where the kid goes, no matter what level of education he has. And, uh, you know, because like getting into college is hard now. It's really hard. No matter who you are, it's really hard. But if we if we're if we're getting guys into school, we've got to find ways to help them be successful after college. So well, well, you know what I just heard there is is this is the birth and the creation of the Seth Greenberg Mentorship Academy. <laughs> I, I, I think, think we have a buddy in business that that has a need out there that can be filled. I like by, to by, it by one Seth Greenberg. Yeah. <laughs> Jay, Jay Billis will, will have the LLC. Lafonso Ellis will be an advisor extraordinaire. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure shit straight. Uh, we'll, we'll make sure, Seth, that every junior at the end of their year, at the end of the junior year, has interviews set up with at least one or two donors to put themselves in position to be able to have meaningful jobs after they leave our university. The, the, I wanted to start right at the end of their freshman year. Yeah, I, I'd love to. Well, that, that's again, I was trying to just plant that seed and we'll talk about it another I, time. I agree. I got to bounce up. All right, you got it. <laughs>